Um, so I'm going to start with this, this uh, quote from um, a novel called Red Earth Pouring Rain by Vikram Chandra about a young Indian lad called Sanjay at the time of the Raj who's brought in front of a, um, an Englishman in all his military finery eating a steak, uh, cutting into the steak which is pretty raw and bloodied. Sanjay moved his head, shut his eye, tried to speak, but found his throat blocked tightly by something as hard as metal. He did not know what it was he wanted to say, but he knew he couldn't say it. What was possible to say he couldn't say in English? How can in English one say roses, doomed love, chaste passion, my father, my mother, their love which never spoke, pride, honor, what a man can live for and what a woman should die for, can you say in English the cow's slow, distant tinkle at sunset, the green weight of the trees after monsoon, dust of winnowing and women's songs, the patient goodness of people met at wayside, winter bonfires and fresh chapatis? In English, all this, the true shape and contour of a nation's heart, all this is left unsaid and unspeakable and invisible. And so all Sanjay could say, after all, was not. So Vikram Chandra in, talks about this um, excerpt from the book and the impossibility of <coughs> translating um, for him uh, his homeland into English prose, yet at the same time he's compelled to do this. He sees it as his duty as a writer and he sees the whole business then of writing as translation. And in many ways, in medicine, we're doing that all the time with every patient we, we see. We're trans translating them into something we can then uh, engage. But I, there are particular challenges um, if that frontier is separated by not just uh, different human beings, but cultural um, boundaries. And I just wondered, Daljit, in your, uh, your opening, your first collection of poems, Look we, have coming, look, we are coming to Dover. How you set about communicating that world of, 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 the, of you know, your parents' Punjabi heritage into English and indeed poetry? I think when I first started writing poems, I, I, I didn't really think about these issues. I thought I'd just throw in what I think should go in to talk about my own cultural background. And <laughs> when I take the poems to workshop in a kind of, you know, workshop environment where there be, you know, uh, 10 to 16 people around a table. Uh, quite often, I sort of realised people would just look really confused at what I'd written. And they'd be saying, well, what does this mean? I'm not quite sure what this is about. Um, at which point you start learning um, how kind of insular your own history, your own imagination it has become, that what's central to you is very peripheral. Mm. Um, and to, I guess to some, some degree, Punjabi history or my Punjabi immigration um, is a kind of a side story in a way everybody's stories are. Mm. So it's finding ways to turn that into a challenge and excitement to translate some of those obscure cultural events or practices um, into something that's going to stay dramatic on the page um, rather than be something that's surrounded by footnotes and mm. glossaries and things like that. Mm. Um, so it becomes a really exciting thing. It becomes a form in itself, whether it be form of a sonnet or cultural information. You see, there's this kind of other form that starts to exist that you know you have to find ways to communicate obscure information. But some of these words are, I mean, so we were talking just before, earlier on, about the, the Hindi word bhakti, which, so, you know, often is translated as devotional love. And devotional love is dead on the page, whereas bhakti is not. <coughs> And so, you know, I'll find this with my kids if I'll, they'll say, what does that mean? And I'll, and I don't, the words don't, the words appear and stop, unlike the full-fleshed notion of bhakti. Yeah. So there's difficulty there in that, crossing that frontier. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think also in Britain, you're much more aware that people know what Sufi, Sufism is, mm. um, that maybe, so you have to kind of find ways to link up things like bhakti or bhakti, mm. um, and for me, I've been sort of thinking quite a lot about bhakti, actually, and sort of seeing um, that if you can get the reader's uh, awareness of Sufi and connect it to that somehow, 
that you, you, you found a way in. Mm. Because there's no kind of equivalent in Britain, is there, or no. Western culture of this ideal um, surrendering mm. to th this you know, object of worship mm. um, in a way that you, you feel also you're never going to meet this object of worship, mm. are you? Mm. And that, there's that kind of um, contradiction there, isn't there, or paradox, mm. that you're going to idolize and worship this person knowing for a while you're never going to have an attainment with them. And the possibility of that never happening, that reconciliation mm. never mm. taking place, charges or fuels yes. um, that attraction. Isn't yes. it? That's my understanding of it from yes. my Punjabi background. Yes, it's not quite just unrequited, is it? There's something, it's not, it's not a sort of romantic, un unrequited love. There's something bigger about it, isn't there? Mm. That, um, again, I haven't got the words. Um, mm. I mean, is that, as a as a sociologist, I don't know, Yasmin, whether that's something that, I mean, that must be a recognised phenomenon is of, of translating experience so you can communicate it meaningfully. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're always up against is sort of insecurities of meaning, mm. you know, and particularly, I think, in the context of medicine, you've got cultural difference, but then if you throw Ill sickness and disease mm. into it, mm. um, it makes it much more complex. Mm. So I think there are... A phenomenon that I've been really interested in at the end of life mm. when biochemistry f forms another frontier so you have cultural difference Already, and then, yeah. yeah and then you have the, the biochemical that's changing people's identity meaning language um, so I've been quite interested in that it was very what I thought was it was beautiful that the passage yeah, yeah. yeah. What I thought was really interesting was almost the prelude to that, which is about the eating of the steak, steak yes. which is so wrong at every level. Yes. Um, but <laughs> well, just say uh, a bit more about that, actually, because of the cow, the, the sacredness of the cow. Yes. Yeah, quite. Um, but I, it really reminds me of this lovely story uh, that the cultural theorist Homi Baba talks about when he's talking about language. So I think in translation, you can never get this one-to-one -one correspondence. You know, it's always going to be inadequate and flawed. And um, what he talks about is the sort of, he was doing some archival research on early 19th century um, uh, peasants in India and how they're, they're being pursued to convert to Christianity. And he's talking about that encounter with language and difference. And what he says is they're very clever. He calls it sly civility. And so the Christians are saying, like, come on, you know, Christianity, that's where it's at. And what the Hindus are saying is, okay, we, you know, we accept what you're saying, but in terms of our religion, we can't accept the word of a God that speaks through the mouth of meat eaters. Mm -hmm. So what comes into being is the idea of the vegetarian Bible, right? <laughs> so what Baba is saying is that something <laughs> wonderful happens in this encounter of difference. There's nothing in Hinduism that says theology has to be said that way, but it's in that encounter that produces something new. Mm. And so I think what we're doing, particularly, well, what you're doing, but what we do every, every day in terms of meeting others, is not that mimetic translation. It's what happens in that encounter with difference, you know. Mm. So it's creative, really. I mean, but I don't know whether the Orwell quote is from Darje at the start of the, at the start of um, the collection. That's the essay Marrakesh. Right. The people have brown faces. Besides, there are so many of them. Are they really the same flesh as yourself? Do they even have names, or they are merely a kind of undifferentiated brown stuff? It's great, great <laughs> lines. It's I mean, he's not trying to be no, offensive no, no, in any no. way. It's just this feeling of being overwhelmed by, brown. by different people, yeah, yeah, different culture. And they, in this case, they happen to be brown. Yeah. But I love that undifferentiated brown, brown stuff. stuff. Yes. It's wonderful, isn't it? Which is and what that was Ray before was you, Kip, obviously, as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, different kind of hermetic. Can we have a reading from um, that? Yeah, OK. So, um, Maybe I'll read the title poem, because it's the theme of crossings. Mm. So, uh, in this poem, I just imagine immigrants coming to Britain and moving around the country via Dover. And I want to have a kind of old feel to the language, partly because I see the English language as being a kind of migrant language. It moves around and brings words in. And I've got a quote from Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. It's an epigraph, I guess. So, it's so various, so beautiful, so new. And I, I, always, t I always take that to be the kind of Miranda of Tempest, and maybe he's going back to that newness. And I was partly thinking about newness of um, my relatives when they came to Britain, this kind of stoicism, this wanting to fit in and, 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 and cope. Um, I've got various kind of 
Odd pants are proud, as in P-R-O-W, possibly D, as in of a, of, a, of a ship. Anyway, so look, we have coming to Dover. Stowed in the sea to invade the alfrasco lash of a diesel breeze, ratcheting speed into the tide. Brunt with gobfuls of surf, flemmed by cushy come-and-go tourists, proud on the cruisers, lording the ministered waves. Seagull and shoal life, vexing their blarneys upon our huddled camouflage past the vast crumble of scummed cliffs, scramming on mulch, as thunder unbladders yobbish rain and wind on our escape, hutched in a Bedford van. Seasons or years we reap inland, unclocked by the national eye, or stabs in the back, teamed for breathing sweeps of grass through the whistling asthma of parks, burdened, ennobled, polling sparks across pylon and pylon. Swarms of us grafting in the black, within shot of the moon's spotlight, banking on the miracle of sun to span its rainbow, past us to life. Only then can it be human to hoik ourselves, barefaced for the clear. Imagine my love and I and our sundry others, glared in the cash of our beeswaxed cars, our crash clothes, free. We raise our charged glasses over on parasol tables east, babbling our lingos flecked by the chalk of Britannia. <laughs> So babbling our lingos, I mean, it, there, it's that poem, in order to translate, it's not, it's not a translation, isn't it? it it's making, making language new to deliver that experience, rather than a trans the poet Anne Carson talks about this in, in, in her translations of ancient Greek. We're not, I'm not going to translate this, here it is, here, here's the version of it, with language kind of reconstructed almost. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's it, I was trying to... Um, not maybe so much of that poem, but maybe this, the, the emotion of that's very much about that experience. And some of the poems where, where I sp um, speak on the behalf of some of my characters in first person, very much after a, a correspondence rather than a translation, mm. because I know I can't capture their voices. Mm. So I just want to capture some of, some of their noise. When, when my relatives sit next to each other, they, they talk very loud, like they're having an argument. Yes. You know, they shout. <laughs> Um, and they hold each other and shout, you know, kind of thing, to, to, to get each other's attention. So I want to capture some of that liveliness, that drama. Yeah. Um, I so I remember that. So I remember being in the summer holidays in India with, with my mum, aged kind of six, and terrified that they were all shouting at each other. <laughs> they were having a really nice time, and yeah. uh, she just yeah. you know, said, oh, this is we're having fun. <laughs> Yasmin, your, your, your mum was like that, was she? Yeah, I was just uh, I was saying to Taljit before about, you know, p different people talking about their sort of family life, and my family life was very different, but I think, so my mum <laughs> wouldn't necessarily talk in a poetic way, but she did tell me, teach me how to be really filthy in three languages, you know. <laughs> so I think the sort of, the, the slide between sort of cultures and different classes and also just experiences of um, migration and settlement are really inscribed into our language. Could you talk a bit more, Yasmin, then, about your work, your research work, and your particular interest then in this in the in the cultural frontier that gets exposed and problematized at the end of life? Mm. So um, the research I've been doing for about twenty years now has been about with uh, our first generation of migrants who came to the UK in the nineteen fifties and sixties and who are now dying in greater numbers. I'm sure lots of you will have experience of this because you're seeing them. Mm. Um, and so in terms of the frontiers of, of transnational dying, what I've been really interested in is the collision of very different sort of thresholds. So the movement both across territories, but also from life to death. Um, so I'm really interested in what happens in that sort of intensity of boundary crossings. Mm. And in many ways for all of us, death is the last migration. Mm. 
Um, so I've been doing uh, ethnography, which means, you know, spending lots of time in settings. So in one study, I worked as a volunteer in a hospice day centre, um, serving teas and coffees, and I worked in a, in a pottery class. Um, but I also did uh, narrative interviews, oral history interviews with dying people and, and interviews with staff. So it was really interesting. Mm in that way um, to listen to people's stories but what I sort of understood much later was that when people are facing death mm. migrants they also look back on their lives mm. you know so I was getting I started off with my stupid little topic guide <laughs> you know that I developed from reviewing the literature and I did my first five interviews, and what I noticed was people were very skillfully just bypassing my stupid questions. <laughs> and what they were giving me was their life histories. And so that's when I really changed and became interested in narrative interviewing. But so I think times of death and biographical transition that people are doing identity work. And what's so different at the end of life is that those are questions, I think, become more complex and interesting. So it's not the traditional questions are not so, who are you? And in the case of us, where are you from? Mm. You know, or what are you, if mm. you happen to be mixed? Mm. But I think what happens in terms, when we're talking about disease, and the, uh, I think it was William who talked about the deportations mm. of illness. Mm. When you are being deported through illness, the questions also become not just who are you, but when are you? You know, and that obviously mm. happens with dementia too. Which was asked by one of yeah, our students yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I know. <coughs> I know you've got some um, readings that we're going to ask. We've got two actors here that are going to perform them. Yes. Is this a good time for one of them? Um, yes. I'll just introduce mm. the first um, piece. So they're not readings; they're, they're performances. performances. Um, yeah. And the first one is a composite, which comes from uh, interviews really, uh, with, with imaginative work sort of uh, in the fabric. Mm. And I'm really interested in the crossing of biology and culture yeah. and what that might mean. But also, um, I noticed that you talked about uh, some of your students had done something on MRI. Mm. Um, and I was thinking, so there's a, a bit about technology, really. And so we can see so much and see so little. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking now about the chamber almost being like a whale, you know, um, but it comes back to this in a way. It's about a Hindu woman um, and what a devotional practice might be of the flesh. Hmm. Um, so um, if Sasha Frost could come on, who's just going to perform this piece, which is called Magnetic Resonance. Can we have the lights down in the stage right spots? Thank you. August 28th, 2.08 p.m., and she is learning another language. Metastases, ascites, palliative care. She didn't ask how long, but someone somewhere in the room said, I'm sorry. They did say that, didn't they? Mostly we've prodded and poked. Sometimes we've listened to her in size or looked right through her. Come on in, Mrs. Das. There's nothing to worry about, a radiographer said. The woman stands for a while in awed silence in front of the white rotunda. With a persuading hand, she sits and then lies back on the platform. Terrified, she allows herself to be swallowed feet first. She remembers her child waking from a bad dream 40 years ago. Mama, he whispered, I hate the night. I want to get a big ladder, climb to the top and break the moon. She stroked his small face and soothed him, allowing the slow velvet of his earlobe to slip back and forth between her fingers. And the eerie beauty of the chamber, the woman listens to her breathing. 
she imagined the magnet as a supreme being watching over her. Out of nowhere, a downpour, buzzing, hammering, tolling. It backs off, then it regroups. <coughs> Snapping loudly around her like a pack of rabid dogs. The air thins. The woman's skin tightens. Her temperature soars and dives. Her heart races, her stomach churns. The world wobbles. Let's leave the light on in the hallway, she said later that night. On a screen, we peer into the woman in cross sections, and whichever way we look, we cannot foresee the dark magic that place and neurology have made of her. How these two lovers will unzip and play with what has been mixed up and melded. She leaves us <coughs> bit by bit. She is here and she is there. Sometimes calling out to her dead. <coughs> Without her prayer beads, her fingers still work the ghostly mala as if she is praying. It's a fleshy devotion emptied of thought. We cannot reach her. Is it language? imagination, biochemistry that keeps us estranged? Her last words to her daughter um, come freewheeling out of a morphine haze. She is restless, more restless than she was those five decades before. Get the tickets and the passports. <clears throat> so a fleshy devotion devoid of thought. That's, that's it, isn't it? That's Bhakti, I think. Yeah. Oh, when I was hearing that, I was thinking sort of my, my relatives, the, the older generation, that first generation of here, who are kind of more, more vigorously now playing cassettes or CDs almost like 24 hours a day with the, you know, the, the recitals from the scriptures as a way of you know, um, finding some sort of you know, um, acceptance by the gods into their next life and, and hoping their children turn out right if they haven't turned out right. Uh, so it kind of seems to be more... A devotion devoid of thought in that sense. Hmm. It's just, so a lot of my relatives just have the cassettes on all day long, uh, on a kind of loop, hmm. or, or CDs. So it's just yeah. as a way of, uh, this is a bhakti thing. Yeah. That if you play, if you listen to the scriptures long enough, you know, be you, well. you yeah. just don't, they have to be on in the background. Yes. Things will turn out right. Things will turn right. It's incredible. <laughs> so it, kind of, it kicks in, doesn't it? When I think when people get to about 50s or 60s, they suddenly start playing the CDs. Yes. <laughs> Constantly almost. How is that, when you switched, when you, you said you had your set of questions, and they, the questions were, you know, a, a, a two-wide frayed sieve, and it was all falling through it into this. How was that received then by the academic? Is that now, uh, was that received well by an academic community? Actually, we're going to do this differently. We're just going to hear the story rather than, uh, you know, framing it. <laughs> I mean, I think it's been a journey, really, because I, I started off this work um, because both my parents died within six months of each other. And so I guess these questions felt very real. You know, I'd looked after my dad for seven and a half years, and so I'd come out for my first degree thinking I might do some postgraduate work. And then, so he was a doctor, he was a microsurgeon, um, and who was brain damaged during cardiac bypass surgery. 
So um, all of that, the world wobbling, you know, <laughs> felt very real for all of us. And it's also, boy, does something, there's something so frightening when that happens to a doctor, you know. Yeah. When, so there, there was almost a, a sense when that for happened. Him, for him, Well, no, from the, the care that he got. Right. You, sent, you sense that there was a real sense of shame or, or something was, you know, particularly difficult about... For the people caring for yes, him. Yes, yeah. Because he was a doctor. Yes, yeah, and this yeah. had happened. But yeah. um, I think in, so in terms of those questions, and I went at that time when they died, I was just... So my mum, Sasha's the end of that piece, get the tickets and the passports, mm. was <laughs> the last words my mum spoke to me. You know, and they did come out of that. I was just sitting by... You know, she had a syringe driver mm. and everything... Um, and those uh, travel metaphors, apparently, they're quite common, you know, not just for migrants. There's a wonderful um, book, some of you might know it, Final Gifts, yeah. which is written by two palliative care nurses, and so those travel metaphors come up a lot, I think. Across the spectrum, or particularly in the no, migrant community? No, across the spectrum, right. um, but that particularly, and it's taken me years to really understand what that might be about and again there's an insecurity of meaning I don't know uh, what that means but I think I started off thinking there's got to be something written about this you know so yes. when my mum was dying she started writing down family recipes you know all those things I started to listen more carefully yes. um, thing you know there's so much we don't know about our own parents yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so when I went tearing through the libraries, thinking there's got to be something written about migrants' experiences of dying. And I didn't find anything. I found something in a book by the um, campaign for uh, victims of torture, medicine and victims of torture, and it talked about cultural bereavement. And that was the nearest that I got to it. And I just thought, God, I've got to write something. Mm. And then you do a PhD, and that just gets lost. Mm. So I wrote, sort of, I'm really happy if about six people read any of my articles, you know. <laughs> and so I got sidetracked with all the sociological stuff about mm. writing. And so this book was me coming back to that point mm. of trying to do different forms of writing. So it's a book of short sociological stories mm. based on sort of those interviews, really. Mm. And uh, so it was a long time... Mm of working through through that stuff and it and um, yeah I got sidetracked. I like the title by the way. Death and the Migrants. Yeah. Death and the Migrants could be very literary. <laughs> Speaking I mean just that talking about different you know, coming to different types of writing late, I understand that you in fact didn't pick up a book of poetry till you were nineteen. Uh, yeah, I went, so went that was only to quite five a tough or six years ago. Near yeah. Heathrow, and um, I don't remember ever doing any poetry and then sort of getting into it. So, yeah. how did that happen? So, at 19, what happened? You just picked something up and. Yeah, William Blake. I was writing sort of song lyrics and then sort of came across a book by William Blake, you know, with, with his own sketches. And, um, and the poems looked simple. Right? So, <laughs> that drew me. I thought, I can read that, I can follow this. And it just sort of took off from there. You opened really. it, opened that. Yeah, world. and then just kept going back to those poems, you know. This, you know, the Garden of Love, you know, whether it be Tiger, Tiger, those sort of poems. And you kept finding other things in them. And what about that? So is, it, is this too trite a distinction? What, the Western epic, the Greek ep you know, or at least the, the epic of the Western tradition against uh, the Asian epic, so things like the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Mm. Um, is, there, is there... Can we draw any sort of tenable distinction or is that too... Yeah. too well, I, th I think when I started looking at the Ramayana, or when I was researching for mine... Um, just I, tell I, us a bit about the Ramayana before you do. Um, just yeah, it's, just, it's, it's probably t uh, well over 2,000 years old. Some people say it's under 2,000 years. Some people say it's nearly 3,000 years old. It depends who you listen to. Mm. Um, and the oldest written version is probably the Hindu one, but it could be the Buddhist. Again, uh, academics disagree with that. Um, and it's, you know, the story has different written versions in it across India, mm. and then in Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia... Um, Burma, they all have slightly different variations of the story. Mm. Um, and actually, when I, was, when I was working on my version, I, I, at times I felt I could just do a very English version, um, a very kind of English-friendly version, where I could take as many kind of parallels with the Greek classics as possible. Because mm. there are so many stories which are equivalents, uh, but mm. done differently. And um, the assumption is that maybe merchants were taking stories around and exchanging stories. So yes. 
Uh, there must have been that big exchange. And, and I guess the, the basic story of the Ramayana is very simple, isn't it? And very kind of, we can all relate to it. It's about, in, in the Greek Western sense, it's a man who falls in love with a woman, marries her. Um, she gets abducted, and he has to go into battle to win her back. Yeah. Um, which is yeah. part of the Aeneid, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then within that, he, he has to pick up a bow to shoot a bow. Nobody's ever been able to lift it up yeah. in many of the versions, which again takes us back over here, doesn't it? So there's constant parallels. Um, I guess apart from, we don't really have intelligent talking monkeys in the West, do we? So, yeah. uh, well, intelligent you talking kept. bears. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Can we hear a bit? Good line. Line. That is very good line. Um, so, should we do the Medicine Mountain bit? Yeah, so this okay. is a story about hun Hanuman having to find a medicinal herb for Lakshman. Yeah, Rama's so brother, Rama's yeah. brother, Rama's yeah. the hero's story. His brother's uh, dying in battle. Um, and th this story only comes in a few hundred years ago, the Medicine Mountain, right? which is really interesting. Is that there was no kind of equivalent. Because in, in the Ramayana, quite often, gods are helping things out, aren't they? Making things better. But mm. this is about a plant, just getting a plant. A little plant. Mm. It's cute. Mm. So anyway, so I'll, I'll read back page and a half. Um, Hanuman, this monkey, who can change size, which is great for the story, isn't it? Um, uh, he's been told by a bear to go and get this. Th there's one way to save Lakshmana, otherwise he's, he's kaput. Okay, so Jambavan, the wise bear king, went to Hanuman. Hasty for the mountains go between Kalasa and Risab in the Himalayas is the medicine mountain. From there, pluck the sacred plant called Visalya. Lakshmana might be saved by it. Hanuman, this son of wind god, was a natural carrier and knew he'd need to be back in a jiffy to save the day. He swung his tail till he was outstandingly expanded. Then he charged for the distant mountains. Hanuman flew at the speed of Garuda, eagle, and, there was and was there plenty quick. He saw the mountain peak, but it had a killer discus whirling speedily about it, protecting the whole peak. Besides, Hanuman's head was chocked with the scent of a billion balmy breeze teeming herbs sprigging there. He prayed for the first ever time to his element father, that father recall son, that father make the discus cease. And at once the zooming discus came to slowly whirl and slowly came to rest upon the peak. Hanuman took deep breaths for he knew his father from however far was wings for him. Hanuman shambled about the peak trying to pluck a sprig. But each time he went to lift the sprig, the sprig seemed to rescind into itself, back into stone, from where it grew against the course of nature. Then all at once, all sprigs vanished. A bare-faced mountain faced Hanuman. Lakshmana will die. Hanuman was truly narked now. With his cheek-puffing might and thunderous muscles, he lifted, he lifted the whole darn mountain crest the whole darn mountain crest on a bare palm which he flew along a winged stream back to the battlefield. The two startled armies pulled back their wield and watched as Hanuman rested the mountain. Then he lifted Jambavan atop for a gentle bear mantra. Soon as Jambavan crooned his single note yodel, one teeny leaf between rocks gently peeped out its head. The teeny peepy leaf was lit like a lotus and beamed upwards for those refined biscuity paw tips. Jambavan brought the leaf before Lakshmana's nose. The delicate vulnerable Visaya, sorry, the delicate vulnerable Visalya, light as a curl of air and transparent, save for a whiff of green, had enough guts to yank back from the deep pit nigh death flesh, bounding upwards and alive. Lakshmana was given ample shakti when his wounds healed and his blood plugged dynamic. Oh. Thank, you. Thank you to the story. It's not me. <laughs> it is you. It's Hanuman <laughs> truly knocked. <laughs> I mean, how's the, how has the, I don't know how the Hindi and Punjabi community who venerate this mm. story, ha have you had 
formal reviews, comments about their reception of this interpretation of it? Um, no kind of formal reviews as such mm. yet. Um, Again, I think somebody in the independent reviewed it or had an Indian or Asian name <laughs> who gave it a nice review. So yes. um, I don't know who that was, but I've read one or two sort of um, Asian setups mm. in Birmingham mm. and um, British Library, which is largely Asian. So mm. it's, it's been a fairly positive response. Mm. Um, I'm kind of a bit nervous around mm. those sort of Asian crowds because yeah. some, for some people it's a very devotional yes. text. Uh, and I, would, I regard myself as a secular yes. person. So yeah. for me, it was a case of taking from as many different versions yes. and trying to skip between, slyly between the various... And um, make it new. ...religiousness is... Yeah, for me, yeah. Absolutely, because... Um, yeah, I mean, just because there are so many religious traditions of it, and I think there's loads of oral traditions, and every kind of... You know, probably about 80%, 90% of people who know the Ramayana know it as an oral story mm. on the streets of India, across the whole of India, mm. so, you know, Sri Lanka... Essentially, it's an oral story still, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I would say a lot of those oral stories have, kind of, uh, have a kind of secular quality. And they can be quite irreverent, can't they? And, and the monkeys can be quite cheeky and saucy, mm. some of those versions. And there's the cartoon tradition of it as well, mm. you know, the but comic those, tradition. I mean, the contemporary versions presented in, on, say, television particularly in India, it's very champagne-filtered and um, almost saccharine... <laughs> Kitsch, rather, th you know, does it? So, in a sense, that that's one interpretation, yeah. and everyone, it, you know, it's a, it's a modern kind of adoration of its own, as opposed to this, which is raw and bodily, and so. So, in fact, this is this feels truer to me than the media mm -hmm. representation in India now of that mm -hmm. kind of story. Yeah, I think I think just because um, partly the medium I'm working, the material I'm using is the English language, mm. and it feels so protean and hybrid um, mm. that my story was, you know, allowed to go between these various traditions through time, mm. and I was picking up different versions of the story for across a few hundred years mm. um, and across different mediums, mm. um, and the language can sort of take that, can't it? Mm. As you said, narked. And mm. things like you can use odd, strange, slangy words and very old-fashioned diction, and and it can almost seem to sit together, I think. Mm. Maybe in a very self-conscious way, but you can kind of, you know, you have a go at it. <laughs> yes, I mean, obviously the UKIP line um, just brought good. me <laughs> instantly to your comment earlier on about, um, which I, this had eluded me, this fact altogether, that when the um, list of members of the BNP was um, outed, when was that? That was about uh, 18 months ago, I think, yeah. That on that list, was a, num a number of doctors, yeah. which was, um, you know, I, uh, that, that was just before we came on. Yeah. Um, so because, in fact, we were going to talk a bit about, um, the, the words are all wrong for this, but I guess prejudice and, and, and the difficulties of encountering other, other races. But in fact, if we, maybe we don't need to be quite so subtle about it at all if there's a, a number of doctors on that list. I mean, how did that, how, when you saw that, how did you... Presumably there's no nurses on the list, of course. I think there was healthcare professionals oh, okay, on the list. But, um, <laughs> I mean, there's lots of things. I, I just find it... Oh. <laughs> so there's lots of things, like, why not, <laughs> um, obviously. Uh, but it's very and disconcerting. Why. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. exactly yeah. why. And mm. But I think there's, so that's one extreme. Mm. But, I mean, from doing ethnographic work as well, uh, there's this banal racism or ethnocentrism that I see all the time, you know, there's... Just banal racism, just... What, by what, so what do you mean by banal racism? Well, racism is kind of locking people into a certain way of being or mm. thinking. Mm. And I think so many people sometimes can be... We, in all of our lives, we're sort of hermetically sealed. Mm. You know, we don't encounter difference. How, you know, how many of our friends, if you just sort of look around the people, we tend to sort of cluster in sameness. Mm. So with, in terms of... Um, I, I remember a quote from a social worker. Social workers are so brilliant, you know, because they have this training of anti-discriminatory practice. Um, and what's interesting in medicine and nursing now is, again, a sort of colonialism, which is cultural competence. <laughs> you know, that, okay, if we learn everything about Hindus, we'll be able to deliver sort of culturally competent care. Whereas, really, sometimes it's incompetence where the most inventive care comes from. You know, the not knowing, again. Because it prompts a general attentiveness, as William and was an saying inventiveness, right. you know. Um, so, right. but I've, yeah. So I just think there's the way there, there's a social worker who said she was she was based in the home care team, 
and she, was say, and she said to me, you know what drives me up the wall is the word, it's cultural. And she says that always happens in terms of, you know, encounters with racialized others. But she was saying, and what it's cultural means is therefore we don't do anything with it. <laughs> and so I think there's that. And, and when I've spoken to, um, I did sort of lots of focus groups, particularly with mixed, uh, you know, interdisciplinary groups. And I was really noticing these sort of tropes of when they talked about cultural difference, these phrases of getting it right mm. and getting it wrong mm. kept coming up. Mm. So we don't want to get it wrong, mm. you know, it just feels so different when you're from a different culture. And I think an, another metaphor was tightrope walking. Mm. So that care across difference was sort of, it was how do we not get it? And the tightrope is such a good metaphor because when you fall off a tightrope, it's a spectacular devastation, isn't it? It's sort of, and I think mm -hmm. the, the uh, sort of political correctness mm. or wanting to be seen as anti-racist, people are just very scared mm. that they might get it so wrong. So what do you mm. see as a, I mean, so that's interesting pointing that, I can see that, I can feel that, but what do you see as a way around that? What's, it's almo it was almost saying, um, don't, you know, don't be afraid. And just yeah, it's funny, it's like Susan Jeffers' book, a brilliant book from the 1970s, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. You know, and I think mm. you can't take out emotion from care, because if you did, you'd be robots. Mm. So I think there is that, it's, I just think it's really tricky, difficult work, and I think sometimes the cultural competence is almost like a comfort blanket, mm. you know, and it's all rational, so if we know yes. everything about Hindus, we'll be okay. But we have these amazing cultural hybridities now, and, and Dalgit's work's just sewing that with language. But all of us, our cultural identities, our religious identities, are full of contradictions. Yeah. You know, so, so saying it's cultural almost, you know, what, what isn't? Yes, and, um, exactly. And do you think that comment, it's cultural, is because it presupposes uh, an intervention that must fix it, i.e. we can't fix it because it's cultural, rather than one which is, let's understand it, in which case... There's no problem there, is it? If you're setting out to understand rather than to fix. Yes. Um, and you can and see it. I mean, coming back to your first point about empathy, mm. I mean, I think empathy is always an aspiration. Mm. You know, I don't think we can ever fully understand another person, mm. not least because we don't understand ourselves. Mm. So there's the otherness within. You know, all those things like, oh, my God, Yasmin, where did that come from? Mm. You know, we're continually... And I think things like cultural competence or over-rationalizing, mm. it shuts down surprises. Mm. So care, really good care, is about discovery, isn't it, for both sort of sides. Mm. Um. Well, I, also, I mean, I was thinking of, um, I was thinking just when you are talking about the um, Brick Lane film a few mm. years ago, and, and the locals protested about, mm. they didn't want the film to be shot at Brick Lane, mm. and filmmakers just suddenly pulled away. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting it, metaphor. Yeah. I was thinking, well, why couldn't they have had a discussion with them? Yes. You know, these aren't savages. They, they, you know, you've got to kind of meet them head on. Yes. Um, and I'd want somebody, dealing with my sort of parents, my generation, to actually talk to them directly, not to feel they have to skirt around things yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and find out, you know, their way of dealing with illness or their treating thing. But to have a kind of forthright negotiation discussion, and there is a kind of just pulling away sometimes. Mm. Which, well, which can be fear, inadvertently yeah. insulting and offensive. Yeah, demeaning because we won't engage in conversation. Yeah. yeah. Might we have the second performance? Um, yes. So uh, partly, um, I'm just going to just give a bit of context to this as well. Um, and it's a story, and I think uh, lots of you will know this with patients as well, that some people just get under your skin. You know, you don't know why, but they come home with you. They're there, you know, they, they accompany you for years. Um, and this is about somebody that I interviewed 20 years ago, um, he was a refugee from Ghana, um, and we'll call him Ibrahim. In fact, he chose that pseudonym himself, which is really interesting. Um, he had two ch grown-up children in Ghana. They were really poor. I mean, they had nothing here. Um, he had a small shop, and when he had cancer, he'd had to give it up, and they were in a now in a council house. They had nothing. Um, and he, when I interviewed him, he was in a lot of pain, so he'd brought, been brought into the hospice to get his symptoms under control. And the, the transcript of that, the audio recording, is just indented with sounds, so both his breathing, 
um, and the rhythmic sort of syringe driver going in the background. Um, and he was really worried about his son. He had a 16-month-old son who I've called Atty in this country. And he was thinking, what's going to happen when I die? And he says this bit from his interview. He'd come up with his own solution about the problem he saw facing his baby. He wanted to be buried in Ghana. I want my son one day not just to melt away into this society, but think of a place where he comes from and one day or once in a while go back there. And when he goes back there, and then there's this gravestone standing there and say, oh, that's your dad lying there, just gives him some kind of attachment to a place which I will cherish. But if he stays here, he just melts away into society and that's the end. So I go on to talk about the contradictions there. Because Abraham was a refugee, he could never go back in life. He'd sort of tried to set up this morbid umbilicus for his son, you know, post-mortem. Um, and it never happened because they didn't have enough money to take the body back. And so I was very interested in sort of also thinking about end-of-life care wishes. Mm. Um, and there's, uh, some of you might know J.L. Austin, who is an uh, uh, ordinary language philosophy person, and he has this idea of speech acts. And so for speech acts to get uptake, the conditions must be right. Um, and so I was interested both in Ibrahim's sort of fragile speech act, but also in the materiality of that, of flesh and soil, you know, being in Ghana, what that might mean. So there were sort of organic metaphors as well. Um, and I just end it uh, with a quote from John Berger, who's another one whose who's writing I really love. But I say, Ibrahim could not be buried in Ghana because his partner did not have the money for the repatriation of his body and the burial costs. But I do not know how the story of this fragile, spirited hospitality will end. I imagine that Ibrahim's son has some inkling. I hope so. And then this is the quote from Berger. Love insists on making a leap over death because the beloved constitutes the most particular and differentiated image of which the human imagination is capable. Every hair on your head. And so um, this performance that I've uh, written is how I imagine Atti, Ibrahim's son, who will be about 22 now, and I took, I've taken Sam's sort of invitation to think about crossings in relation to football. So, um, Atti? Spot, thank you. No, no, we didn't lose the game, man. We just ran out of time, you get me? They played dirty all the way, kicked us to pieces. Tackle studs up, scrappy goals and set pieces. They owned us. Still dreaming of Wembley, though. Looking to tax Sterling's crown and getting out with Ma. Gonna take her on one last fuck you lap of honor around the estate. Matt Black Audi R8. Safe. Saw one last week at Elephant, nearly cried. On the pitch, I'm more like Neymar. Learned the hard way with crossing, though, you know what I'm saying? I mean, slotting through balls, you've got to take one look up and that's it. Keep your eyes on the ball, pray for it and deliver it as safe as you can. I mean, not to rabbit screaming at you like a maniac. Front post! Front post! All the Kieran is hanging back, pleading with all he's got. The boys think they know you. I mean, they got your back, but maybe something changed this time. Maybe you're not that you, you get me? I mean, you don't know, they don't know. So it's all about areas, not people. You get me? I mean, forget our drills and YouTube and all that. This is real time. This is it. Make magic, you know what I'm saying? Still with your front foot. A dirty 360 so I don't know if you're going to eat or puke the ball. The mimic man's dragged back. Then knees bent, side on. Showing them boys where you want them. That's muscle poetry and chemistry. Cesar they call it in Ghana. It means fill. 
feel a flesh inside. You get me? It's the ghost of every move. Dream, thought, breath, every game you've ever played. Bone, flesh, turf, everything coming together. But time's running out, so you've got to go with it and dash. And keep it real, you get me? Don't make promises you can't keep, because no matter what you know in here and in here, no matter how hard you trained, you don't know how this is going to end. I mean, that bores your memoir, but you don't get to write the ending. Afterwards, the dressing room is fucking dead. Coach is testiculating, proper vex, militant. We's feeling shit anyway, no one can hear him. Nothing to say. Nothing. Just drowning in the pain and stink of rank shimpads, cocoa butter and sweat. We all want to breeze out, but we stay and wait for the last man. Roll out tight, you get me? I mean, back to the drum, and there's still dead flowers and candles on the walkway. I mean, what the fuck? It was more than these brain-dead cliches. Another extra from Top Boy, Shanked, the next gangster flick, fucking tourist. Every day, something changes around here, you know what I'm saying? Someone or something's blotted out. My old man didn't want to end up here, no. When we saved up for years, kept him in the pot until we could save up enough money to get him back to the old country. Stupid ref couldn't go back when he was alive, though, could he? Thought the feds were going to kill him or something. Before he passed, he told Ma to bury him there, though, didn't he? Whatever, man. Thought he could link me like, there's my dad and all that. I want my son not just to melt away into this society. Should have kept him on ice, cranks up the respect with those Africans. Some dagbon can snatch the record for that, though. Four years in a morgue, no lie, cost thousands. Took my years doing shit jobs to pay for the funeral, stressing about the posters, beer, the generators, the cameraman, and all the time we was over there, all we're getting is, gimme, 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 some fucking respect. Door no return. He's not there though, is he, with the black stars? He's in Burgess Park, keeping it local. Taught me how to drop kick there before I could even walk. First word I said was bull. That's where we linking. Just feeling him there and in there. Take the ball down there, show him what I got. Show him my drills and tricks. Run so fast till I can't feel nothing, only my heart coming out my fucking mouth, spitting bars. Ludwig Bonning. When you said um, speech act, what do you mean by that? Um, well, for Austin, they were utterances, so they could be spoken or, you know, bits of text. Um, and he was basically looking at different meanings, so that when you say something, there's lots of different levels of meaning. Um, and I think what I was trying to convey with that as well 
Uh, you talked about this being arty-farty sometimes. I, I, did, think. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> no, but one of the comments. <laughs> but I think in, in medical humanities, what I always notice is it's very elitist, but yeah. there's an emptying out of the social, really. And I think mm. what I was trying to convey um, with Turf, that piece, was the sliding of lots of different contexts of loss. So Ibrahim lived in uh, south-east London, uh, on, and this is sort of set in Woolworth, you know, in the Aylesbury estate, which has been subject to regeneration. So lots of communities being sort of pushed out. And so I think, you know, how I imagine Atty now is this incredibly intelligent young man. And the football stuff is from my son, really, who's, again, sort mm. of mad on football. But um, so that was trying to convey, but also Cecile um, Lame, which is the Ghanaian word for sentience, mm. which means feel, feel at flesh inside, mm. you know. So I was trying to sort of work with different senses of loss, but also time as being non-linear, you know, of being able, of sort of going backwards and forwards as well. And grief is, I mean, Freud used to say in terms of melancholia, you know, as being stuck. But actually, I think what people, research is now suggesting is what's called continuing bonds, that we have this relationship with the dead, you know, that carries on. Um, and so all of that was kind of there. And I was just thinking about the ball as being a speech act and right. crossing, you know, that you actually never know. So you can train really hard, you can set it up. But when it's everything so precarious. So, and sometimes also people, um, this is again from research, talking to people about where they want to be buried. I mean, is that literal? Or, mm. you know, are they expressing physical or existential pain or not belonging. Mm. And there's a, that amazing book by Grace Nichols, the Fat Black Women's Poems, and she has this uh, beautiful poem called Tropical Death, mm. where it moves from, you know, wanting a tropical death, but also talking about sort of the middle passage and slavery. And, and so again, it's those losses. Mm. That's very interesting. I, I just wanted, speaking of speech acts, could we have a couple of poems before we bring the, go on, I might as well have two. Or three. <laughs> um, okay, shall I read? I've got a poem which has four parts to it. Oh, perfect. That, that solves yeah. the problem. Um, <laughs> part, it's basically about my father, I guess. So it's partly based on my father coming to Britain. Uh, he's from a landowning caste in, in, back in Punjab and had to sort of fit in here. And he was a kind of champion wrestler in India, and I talk about him um, trying out for, you know, the um, wrestling on telly and learning about fake dives and, to and turning away from it. And then I talk about him get me and my brother to wrestle with other boys and we used to have relatives come around all, all the men would get drunk and the boys <laughs> have to fight each other <laughs> Great. I, 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 my, it's more my brother had to do it actually he's a bit older than me and then the final section um, talk about probably my happiest memory of my father he's still alive but him, he used to come home drunk you know back in the 70s it was fine wasn't it he'd come home drunk in the car and he'd do handstands and walk around on his hands and do various things for us um, so. So it's called, um, and so it's very slangy language. It's going to go back to your piece there, I think. So father figures, so round one. When the Brits swaggered some ads informing the gawping Punjabis they could make a packet in the motherland with Her Majesty dishing out freebie travel vouchers, the low castes who loved Charlie Chaplin packed some rags on the end of a pole <coughs> and planked onto the next ocean liner. Not one for nursing the puny rupee, he ditched his flip-flops and swung out like Tarzan for the rock-hard quid. But he was lost in the big smoke and made to muck, in, uh, and made to muck his hands with the head-lolling paupers from home, overtiming from crud to cruddier job where they knocked out stuff like rubber and ready-break. Round two. When he auditioned for professional wrestling, they ordered he be the baddie, barking at the ringside biddies. He tried to nobble the ref or dropkick the stooled goody-two-shoes rival in the break between rounds. Then there was a rehearsed, he roll over, the loser to a blast of booze before leaving the hall in a hissy fit. He'd grappled in the milky sand pits and the drop-dead sun with the hardest lads known to man and won. He was a curt fighter. This handbags at dawn for infamy 
flawed in. <laughs> he turned his back on wrestling. Now, round three. Your mum would push you into the room when he'd call for you. You'd be made to fight one of the older boys of the men who'd gang round yours. If you got beaten, you'd have to stand for his trivia, the air ripe with the smell of munched green chilies. When he'd ask you to spell out words like lieutenant, he'd say it with an F. Or weirdly, he'd count down while you'd have to name animals in Punjabi. <laughs> he was a whippy quiz master who left you muddle-headed. He'd call you a shir. You knew this meant tiger, and knew he meant, and knew what he meant when you'd, sorry, and knew what he meant when you'd watch the men drowning in bottles of Johnny Walker wail their laughs and throw up claps. Uh, round four. Upside down with his bull neck and bald-headed, palm-handed dance on the petals and stems of the red carpet. He'd take your breath in the grand as possible knock-through lounge of your three-bred semi, mum's knitting needles clacking their jumper joy for the champion heavyweight of Hindustan who didn't sell out and wrestle on grandstand. You loved it when he came home legless from the six bells in his dentedly driven Mustang. You'd plead him into one-armed press-ups. He'd clown out with claps in between, ten on the spot. Or lifting a chair by the base of the leg, he'd juggle it cleanly between arms. But the best was when you watched when he but the best was when he watched you swoon at his handstand feet hanging trapeze as pennies tumbled from his pockets. <laughs> Thank you. We have the house lights up, please. Um, and just, we've just got time, I'm afraid, for four minutes of questions. Are there any? I can't see. Yes, there's, there's a couple up there, please. Um, and then one down here. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, wonderful on, uh, on many fronts. Um, one of the things that I teach medical humanities in a very majority white area, and I'm not quite sure it's the same in other hospitals where there's more diversity, but one thing I Cheltenham. do feel that <laughs> one thing I do feel is that we funnel everybody very quickly through systems, through hospitals, out the other side, without trying to understand or empathise with the subtleties of, of people's beliefs or perceptions about their illness or what would make them more comfortable within a hospital. And um, one of the things I'd like to do, from a, certainly from a teaching medical student point of view, is just to get them to, even though they might not understand the religious um, uh, texts to great depth, but at least um, have some understanding of what people's perceptions from whatever background might be as they travel through that system and, um, and be able to empathise a bit more and perhaps bring that into teaching and then transfer that. So you're asking how we do that? Or yeah, well, no, I've, I mean, in a way, I would like to bring it into the medical humanities teaching I do, but that's, that's only one start. That's with medical students, and mm. it really should carry on right the way through all the healthcare professions so that we all understand, that we all ask people from different backgrounds, whatever they are, what it is they understand or what they fear or want out of the health system that would make them more comfortable and, and you know, to be able to provide for them at a level that is um, uh, that in the time scale that we know that we've got to get them through the... Yes, I mean, I mean it was your point on this almost that actually that, that the, the cultural separation isn't binary, but in fact the spectrum is omnipresent um, and that, you know, handing someone, a, you know, downloading Hinduism, um, which isn't you know, a bad idea, actually. I could do with that. Could, would it's been done. Oh, there's, right. a, there's a culture GPS app out there now. The um, clever people of Apple have sort of developed it. My hunch is we'll get a race sensitivity app, too, not far behind. Could give that as a present to quite a few people I know, I think. But, um, <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a great idea. I also think that in looking at the diversity of sort of medicine and, you know, nursing at the moment, we often presume that the 
care practitioner is going to be white British, you know, where the reality is very, very different. Um, so I think it is, it's, it's very complex, but also I think these, these hybridities that happen, you know, where people are picking and choosing from different sort of uh, cultures is going to be something that's going to make it much more tricky. Hmm. One more question down, I think. Ah, is that right, Anne? Then here then, just, thank you. I think Marshall and Bleakley come out very well with saying that when we're at medical school, we're taught to take a history. And really his point is that we should be receiving a history. And the problem is then when our students present the history, they present it already in medic speak, so to speak. And we lose the beauty of the narrative, which gives us so much more. And it's such a shame that when we reduce our letters now, we also lose those metaphors. And I think having more of those metaphors in the letters we write or in the conversations we have, I think you then come to understand the culture and where patients are coming from. And it's a shame that we are losing narrative medicine. Um, I was just going to say the narrative medicine at Columbia, um, you know, pioneered by Rita Charon, they had this really good technique called parallel charts where they write, so you'll have your, you know, chart about the patient, but they'll actually write as a clinician what their experience, what feelings have come up, and they share that writing every week. You know, so the narrative medicine movement's got some incredible sort of um, just very practical things that you can do to bring you know, stories back in, really. Thank you all. I'm going to have to close that session there, but I'd just like to invite the, um, yeah. Sasha and Ludwig back onto the stage if, if, if they're still... Is Ludwig there and Sasha? Can you come back on?